Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delancey. In the midst of the pandemic, the creative industries are suffering. The past year has made visible some of the inequalities and the unsustainabilities that permeate publishing, design, art and media. But sadly, some of these stresses that we're observing now are nothing new. The Making of the American Creative Class, a recent book by the historian Shannon Clark, traces the story of the creative industries and the workers from their industrial origins in the beginning of the 20th century. And it's a fascinating story of class formation, of consumerist demand, unionization and resistance, of solidarity and exploitation, and of politics and economics. Shannon Clark is Associate Professor of History at Montclair University, and I'm very happy to say that he joins me now to discuss his new book. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Welcome, Pierre. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. That's my pleasure. As I mentioned, your book is an expansive and compelling account of a set of social and capital forces that together come to constitute what we think of as, as a creative class or cultural and creative industries. It'd be great to hear about the perspective from which you approach the subject. Sure. In the making of the American creative class, I set out to examine two interrelated historical developments in the modern United States, right? The first of these is the emergence and growth of a salaried white-collar workforce. Uh, And the second is the emergence and spread of a pervasive culture of consumer capitalism. And in New York City, uh, where most of the book is set, these two trends intersect to a greater degree than anywhere else into the United States. So to the extent that the book can be seen as sort of a, a community-focused book, a book that's focused on New York City, right? there's a very logical reason uh, that I made that choice. It's because these two social trends, right, the growth of what's sometimes described as a new middle class of salaried white-collar employees, clerical employees, but also technical and professional employees, right, intersects with the growth of America's culture of consumer capitalism, right? And the specific groups of workers that I focus on, white-collar workers in advertising, in publishing, in broadcasting, and in industrial design are themselves, you know, at the intersection of these two sort of major defining social trends in the history of the 20th century United States. These culture industries come, you know, in the early decades of the 20th century to define uh, a middle class standard of living, right, that is being promoted in advertising, right, and throughout the advertising supported media in newspapers, in mass circulation magazines, 
right? With the advent of commercial radio broadcasting in the United States in the 1920s, even with the advent of industrial design as a profession in the last years of the 1920s, you know, products them become advertisements for themselves in a sense uh, through the application of various types of modernistic innovative um, you know, aesthetic strategies into the design process. Uh, but even within the culture industries themselves, many of the people who are working to create these sort of images of you know, consumer abundance are not themselves actually earning enough money uh, to live at the standard of living that's being promoted. Um, the inequality economically during the 1920s also makes it difficult for a larger segment of the American population to live up to that standard of living. Um, you know, ultimately, too few Americans have the purchasing power to enjoy the standard of living that's being set forth um, within the culture of consumer capitalism. And that mismatch is ultimately what precipitates the onset of the Great Depression in the United States and contributes to its duration and its severity. Uh, so it's that crisis of consumer capitalism uh, that leads to a sort of a, a more rapid deterioration of conditions within the culture industries themselves that radicalizes many of the white-collar workers who are employed um, throughout New York's culture industries. Um, and that you know, contributes to sort of a, a new kind of class consciousness taking shape amongst many of these white-collar workers uh, that leads to their union organizing efforts during the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, that leads them to try to develop alternative media projects that will function and operate on a different basis uh, than most existing entities that are part of the culture industries. And it's also this process of radicalization in response to the Great Depression that leads to demands for public support for arts and culture, uh, which culminates in the various New Deal cultural programs. Well, let's get to the New Deal and the WPA in a moment, but I think it's worth for a moment dwelling on some of the labor struggles and the union histories of um, the creative industry, of journalists, of artists and designers. So I was struck really early on in the book that um, we could relatively little of the kind of glamour of the creative industry that one could have expected. Even before the onset of the Great Depression, uh, there are increasing pressures within American industry at large and also within the culture industry specifically to rationalize the use of various kinds of white-collar labor. Um, so you see sort of the premium in wages and salaries for white-collar workers over blue-collar workers um, that exists in the first years of the 20th century already beginning to narrow somewhat during the 1920s. Um, there aren't really too many technological quick fixes, but employers are already looking for ways to 
try to figure out how they can sort of limit the use of or spend less money on um, certain kinds of, of white collar work, right? So there's a process of, of rationalization, of intensification of the labor process, of greater division of labor where that's feasible, and you know, introduction of new kinds of labor-saving technology where feasible. Although, again, the, the opportunities to do that in the 1920s are, are, are somewhat um, limited, right? So these processes um, are already underway prior to the onset of the Great Depression, where increases in wages and salaries for various categories of white-collar workers, including those individuals who are writers, artists, engaged in other kinds of, of creative production, where that rate of increase relative to the overall price level, relative to the average wages and earnings of blue-collar earners, where that's already beginning to slow during um, the 1920s, right? Increased rationalization, especially intensification of the labor process, uh, is also beginning to impinge upon the autonomy uh, of many kinds of white-collar workers, including creative workers, um, writers, artists who are drawn into that line of work in many cases precisely because of their desire to do work to earn a living in ways in which they you know can enjoy a greater degree of creative autonomy certainly relative to all of the other things that they could have been doing with their lives to be earning a living during the early years of the 20th century Conditions deteriorate rapidly with the onset of the Great Depression. Um, the culture industries in the United States by this point are fully dependent on advertising. Um, advertising agencies are essentially the great patrons of the top circulating newspapers and magazines in the United States, and they're the patrons of the burgeoning system of network consumer radio, which has already become very quickly instantiated in the United States during the late 1920s. And the curtailment of advertising expenditures in the first years of the 1930s results in massive layoffs and also massive reductions in salary for those writers and artists and other members of the creative class who are able to keep their jobs, right? And so that leads to a greater degree of radicalization, um, which results in the, you know, that's the spark that leads to the organizing of these various unions within the culture industries, uh, the newspaper guild, and the various other creative unions that end up being part of the United Office and Professional Workers of America and other groups of cultural workers who end up um, under the umbrella of the Con Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, in one way or another, or that end up you know, aligned with other uh, parts of the American labor movement. So one of the key drivers of the creative economy, the first half of the 20th century, is the advertising industry and it becomes incredibly dominant. So it would be good to understand the scale of this operation and the shock that the economic downturn may have caused to it. 
This is an industry that expands tremendously in beginning in the late 19th century and especially after the turn of the 20th century to meet the needs of corporate clients. Um, the total volume of expenditures increases significantly. Um, and the other culture industries uh, become dependent on advertising. By the 1920s, advertising revenue accounts for between two-thirds and three-quarters of the total revenue of most mass circulation newspapers and magazines, uh, which is why the you know, contraction of advertising expenditure in the years between 1929 and approximately 1933 uh, is such a shock. Um, even the top agencies, J. Walter Thompson Company, for instance, which is the top billing um, advertising firm, um, where it includes amongst its roster of clients some of the largest, most profitable producers of consumer products in America. J. Walter Thompson has to lay off about a third of its employees between 1929 and 1933. Well, as many of our listeners will know, what put the end to the economic slump of the Great Depression was, to a certain extent, the New Deal program. And for someone who works in the cultural industries, the New Deal seems to have lauded itself um, in a cultural memory as this program that created great artistic movements and completely redefined the position of creative workers in America. But I understand the history is a little bit more complicated than that. The efforts of the New Deal to jolt the American economy out of the Great Depression uh, by expenditure on public works programs in general and other kinds of programs that create employment um, do lead to sort of a slow and steady period of economic recovery during Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first term in office. Um, there's enough improvement during those years that following FDR's second inauguration in 1937, there is actually a decision, and it turns out to be a, a mistake on the part of the Roosevelt administration to begin to curtail expenditures on public works programs of all kinds. And this precipitates renewed economic downturn in the late 1930s that wipes out some of the economic gains that are made between 1933 and uh, 1936. More specifically to the situation of our creative workers in New York's culture industries, the New Deal is important um, in several ways. One, right, as you mentioned, is within these various public works programs, we see, and this is particularly true with the creation of the four cultural projects that are part of the Works Progress Administration, right, efforts to create jobs for culture workers, right? In response to tremendous pressure from radicalized writers and artists and other culture workers, the administration deems that these types of workers are also in need of relief. So we have the establishment of the Federal Arts Project, the Federal Writers Project, the Federal Music Project, and the Federal Theater Project. But the New Deal is also relevant to the 
workers in the culture industries that I examine in this book because it also, with the passage of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, significantly facilitates the process of union organization. Right, So we see the total number of union members in the United States increase from about 3 million workers uh, at the time that FDR enters office in March of 1933 to about 9 million by 1940 and about 16 million by the end of the Second World War. Uh, much of that expansion in Union membership in the United States is in the mass production industries where most of the organizing efforts of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, are concentrated. But passage of the National Labor Relations Act is also very important to people who work in, for instance, newspapers and magazines. Um, who are organizing units of the Newspaper Guild in New York City. And it's important for other groups of workers who are also forming unions um, in New York's culture industries during this time. So the New Deal is doubly important. It's important by establishing a particular models of public patronage for the arts and for cultural production more generally. But the New Deal is also important because of the ways in which labor law is dramatically transformed in the United States under the New Deal, which creates opportunities for workers who've been radicalized by the hardships of the Depression to come together, to engage in collective action that they believe is you know, going to result in you know, shorter hours and higher pay, but that's also, they believe, going to create more opportunities for individual creative autonomy, right? So there's this tension here, um, you know, this a, a desire to have more creative autonomy, but the conviction that it's actually going to be through collective endeavor, through organizing, through forming unions, that, you know, they're going to obtain not just a better salary, um, not just going to obtain a grievance procedure in the workplace, but actually conditions under which they can have greater autonomy, greater control over the art, over the culture that they produce. Well, I'm glad to report that the tension between artistic autonomy and economic stability continues blissfully unresolved until today. Um, I'm wondering, what was the scale of the WPA in comparison with the rest of the economy and uh, in comparison with the rest of the New Deal? The WPA is created in the summer of 1935. When employment on those four projects is at its peak, there's about 45,000 employees um, on those four projects total. On the federal arts projects specifically, employment peaks out during this period at about a little bit over 5,000 artists who are on the federal art project. Uh, 45,000 individuals you know, is a small figure relative to the millions of individuals who are employed by the WPA, but 45,000 is actually a pretty large slice out of the total number of cultural workers. By 1936, uh, the federal government is employing somewhere between one out of six and one out of five 
uh, of all people broadly defined who are engaged in uh, cultural work or, or, or work within the culture industries at that time. Um, from that perspective, I think we can see that the arts projects of the New Deal represent a fairly significant intervention. Well, there certainly are some significant um, legacies of the WPA project. So let's talk about one. You describe in the book quite extensively the Design Laboratory, which is a school set up in New York under the auspices of the WPA. Sure. I think the Design Laboratory exemplifies some of the potential and also the pitfalls of the public arts programs of the New Deal. And it also is a way of examining some of these processes of, by which uh, members of the creative class are radicalized during the Great Depression. So the Design Laboratory was opened in December of 1935 as part of the Federal Arts Project's activities in New York City. And it was the first comprehensive school of modernist design in the United States that was open to general enrollment. Um, for many of the students who were attracted to the school, you know, it really provided their only opportunity um, for a comprehensive training in modernist art and design. Um, European interwar innovations in, in modernism are clearly significant influence, um, the Bauhaus in particular. And there are several individuals on the initial faculty of the design laboratory who had actually studied as students at the Bauhaus in Germany before it was shut down by the Nazis. Um, it's the school has approximately 300 students um, through most of its first year to year and a half of operation. But in early 1937, its funding is cut as part of this more general retrenchment and curtailment of funding for public works activities broadly uh, that begins with FDR's second term in office. Uh, the decision to eliminate funding to the design laboratory is to some extent also influenced by disagreements between the school students and faculty and administrators within the Federal Arts Project about what exactly the purpose of the school is going to be. Um, some of the administrators in the Federal Arts Project think that the design laboratory is going to function as a training school uh, and that people who are able to you know have several semesters of this innovative um, modernist you know art education that's available through the design laboratory are then going to be dispatched to work on community arts projects and other federal arts projects endeavors in more geographically dispersed and isolated parts of the United States uh, and it turns out that most of the faculty and students at the design laboratory aren't really interested in leaving New York and, and serving as staffing on, um, you know, art education projects, community arts programs in far-flung, uh, geographically isolated 
areas of the United States. There's also a political tension as well. Uh, Federal arts projects, activities in New York City, including the Design Laboratory, are a hotbed for radical organizing. Um, for individuals who want the federal art project to be reconstituted on a permanent basis and not as it was during the 1930s, rationalized as sort of a temporary expedient that's made necessary only because of the extraordinary economic crisis of the Great Depression. And many of these faculty and students at the Design Laboratory are active participants in the popular front political and social movements of New York City during the 1930s as well. Uh, These students and, and many of the faculty are participating in demonstrations, including occupations of FAP offices and facilities to demand um, the creation of a permanent art project and to protest against the curtailments in funding and employment on the federal art project um, that ultimately do come to pass in the first part of 1937. When the school's funding is cut, it's reorganized as a cooperative school that's independent of the federal government and that's actually sponsored by one of these militant radical white-collar unions, uh, a union called the Federation of Architects, Engineers, Chemists, and Technicians, the FAECT, which is one of the white-collar unions that is affiliated with the CIO uh, during the 1930s and 1940s, right? And then the school continues for a while under union sponsorship and then enters a third and final phase in 1938 and 39, in which it's run as an independent cooperative without um, you know, any kind of institutional base of support. Um, it's during this third phase that we see some of the most innovative work coming out of the laboratory, both in terms of curriculum and pedagogy and in terms of, you know, actual design output. Uh, But it's financially unstable, and ultimately, the design laboratory closes in 1940, uh, but its faculty and students then disperse um, throughout the United States and throughout the culture industries. In many cases, you know, at the universities and, and art schools that they go to join, they're introducing for the first time um, some of the modernist innovations in curriculum and pedagogy that are first developed within the design laboratory. Um, and students also go on to um, have successful careers as commercial designers in the post-war United States. So even though the school is only in existence for approximately five years, um, it has a significant lasting influence. Right. It looks like running the FPA by shutting down the design laboratory actually managed to achieve its goal of spreading this new type of knowledge around the country. But we talked about the WPA, um, and I'm wondering what was happening within the mainstream and commercial media enterprises around the same time, that is, in the sector that was not supported by the New Deal. Well, the the media enterprises themselves are, the owners and, and executives of these firms are uniformly hostile towards the 
emergence and then the expansion and strengthening of unions within the culture industries. Um, when the National Labor Relations Act is first passed in 1935, media firms uh, immediately seek to be exempt from this new labor law. They are, and they seek exemption on the basis of the First Amendment. Uh, they argue that right, the, the sort of freedom of media enterprises to publish or broadcast what they like, which is really what the owners and managers like, um, that that's fundamentally going to be compromised if you know they have to recognize a union, if they have to follow um, a union contract with regard to, for instance, seniority. So immediately, um, the media firms make clear their hostility to unionization within their own workforce. Ultimately, these struggles are not successful. Um, when the Supreme Court of the United States, in a series of cases in the spring of 1937, upholds the constitutionality of the National Labor Relations Act, one of those cases um, involves a lawsuit from the Associated Press. Um, but the resistance continues um, during the Second World War, when another labor agency is created, the National War Labor Board, to mediate labor disputes um, during wartime to make sure that there's no interruption in production as a result of strike activity, for instance. One of the things that the National War Labor Board does is it begins to insert actual language into collective bargaining agreements that compels union membership. Um, and media enterprises resist this forcefully as well. Um, in the context of the Second World War, it's actually Time Incorporated, um, one of the largest national media enterprises in the United States, under its founder and publisher, Henry Luce, uh, that has tremendous influence. And it's at the forefront of fighting with the federal government during the 1940s against uh, the wartime labor board's determination that any person who's working in the editorial departments of Time Incorporated, right, working on the magazines, working on the radio and film content that Time also produces, that they have to belong to the newspaper guild. So these media employers um, don't just cover the labor movement from afar. The ways in which you know, these employers report on what's going on in the auto industry, what's going on in the steel industry with union organizing, is directly influenced by their own increasingly adversarial relationship with the white-collar unions in the culture industry, right? So essentially, there's sort of the, in these internal divisions within the media that are also influencing decisions that managing editors and executives are making about how to cover the larger political landscape and the larger landscape of labor organizing in the United States during the 1930s and 1940s. Well, this timeline, of course, brings us to the Second World War. And I'm wondering how the creative industries survived the event in any shape at all. Right. The Second World War um, 
you know, even though it's a global catastrophe for most of the human population on this planet, um, you know, brings an end to the Great Depression in the United States. It achieves economically what, you know, the New Deal could not. It ends mass unemployment and federal expenditure in the United States on the war effort completely dwarfs um, spending on New Deal public works programs. One thing that we see immediately is that workers in the culture industries return to the offensive. Um, the end of the 1930s seems sees something of a lull in union activity, but the resumption of economic growth uh, and the pretty rapid decline in unemployment creates um, a tightening in the labor market. Um, and unions across the board in the United States use this as an opportunity to resume organizational growth after this sort of brief hiatus at the end of the 1930s. Um, and the unions in New York's culture industries um, are part of this more general pattern. So we see, for instance, the Newspaper Guild uh, complete its organizing within the daily newspaper industry in New York City, finally, in the early 1940s, um, and begin to strengthen its position in the magazine sector as well with new organizing efforts. We see in workers outside of the talent guilds in broadcasting begin to organize for the first time, leading to the creation by the end of the war of the radio guild, um, which organized all white-collar workers who were not eligible for membership in the talent guilds um, into a single white-collar industrial union within New York broadcasting. Uh, we see the growth of white-collar organizing in the corporate offices of the motion picture companies. So the war years are a period where we see a significant expansion of white-collar unionism in New York City's culture industries. And I think this is important. Um, this sort of new class consciousness amongst these white-collar workers in the culture industries um, is not just sort of an aberrant response to the extreme hardship of the 1930s. Um, we see with the growth of unionism in a strong economic environment during the 1940s um, that you know, some kind of collective consciousness amongst these white-collar workers in the culture industries, that this is actually something that is sinking deeper and deeper roots, um, you know, that it's actually becoming more instantiated within sort of the everyday work practices uh, of writers, of artists, of, of the clerical workers who are doing support jobs um, within media firms, for instance, during these years. Um, at the same time, there is sort of a conservative backlash that is also beginning to generate during the Second World War, so that by the war's end, uh, the United States finds itself in, in a very politically polarized situation, where on the one hand, the union movement is larger and stronger than it's ever been. In American history, 
uh, but that there's also um, a considerable backlash from those groups that um, are outside of union growth and that see um, the improvements in conditions for union members as coming at their expense. Um, and this is especially a salient tension amongst white-collar workers, where white-collar unions expand significantly during the 1940s, um, but still represent a very small percentage of total white-collar employment in the United States by 1945 and 1946. So it's these white-collar workers who are not yet organized, who are sort of left out of white-collar union growth during the 1940s, um, who are often inclined to see um, their stagnant standard of living during the war years as as being the direct result, as coming at the sort of at the expense of the material gains that are enjoyed by unionized workers during the war years. So this tension that you highlight now brings me to a, another aspect of um, the wartime in, in the US, which is that it highlighted a preponderance of communist attitudes and communist views at play in the union movement in the US. Was this also something that affected the creative industries and their unions? Uh, the communist influence within the in within the white-collar unions in New York's culture industries is significant. Uh, the president of the Newspaper Guild of New York uh, during, the, during the war years and shortly thereafter, Jack McManus was someone who was very close to the communist movement, probably a member of the party. Uh, the United Office and Professional Workers of America, which included the Radio Guild, the Screen Publicist Guild, the Screen Office and Professional Employees Guild, um, a book and magazine guild, and also the less successful efforts to actually organize unions in the advertising agencies themselves, uh, was also a union that had communist leadership during this period. This communist orientation in the leadership helps to link these unions to the broader popular front social and political movement. Um, it links these unions to efforts to fight fascism, to efforts to promote racial and gender equality in the United States, to efforts to expand um, the New Deal. Um, and these individuals, you know, in the popular front and also, you know, who are progressive and radical activists in the white-collar unions like the Newspaper Guild or United Office of Professional Workers of America, you know, also want to see a, a, a tremendous expansion in the production of other kinds of public goods and services. Um, they want to see a very robust and expansive and generous public housing program. Uh, they also want to see when the war is over the creation of a permanent arts project, um, essentially like the WPA culture projects, which are shut down with the coming of the Second World War, but to establish public um, funding and employment of artists as a permanent peacetime activity. So there's a tremendous amount of sort of political uh, ambition to sort of take what the New Deal has started, but to expand it 
um, tremendously. I think we're getting the picture that um, political radicalization is at many points inextricably linked to creative activity in the time period that you're discussing. Um, but I think it's even more expansive than that. And there's an example of an organization which is Consumer Union, Consumer Reports, that remains active to this very day. And I thought it'd be great to talk about some of the political aims of this organization. Certainly. So, so far, we've discussed the radicalization of many white-collar workers. Uh, and there's three real manifestations of that, two of which we've already touched upon. But a third dimension of this radicalization is for writers and artists and other individuals who've been employed producing America's culture of consumer capitalism to begin to kind of radically interrogate and criticize the structures of consumer capitalism and to try to create alternative media projects uh, that in their both their content and messaging as well as in their sort of everyday work practices um, that will provide an alternative. And the creation of, of Consumers Union in the middle of the 1930s um, exemplifies this sort of trend towards establishing alternative sites of cultural production, but also you know, draws upon the more general current of union organizing in the culture industries and the advent of the popular front as well. Uh, to explain the history of consumer union and its origins, I have to backtrack a little bit um, to discuss the founding of an earlier product rating and testing institute called Consumers Research, which comes into existence in the late 1920s um, and steadily grows in influence during the early 1930s. And it's the first uh, institute that engages in objective testing, evaluation, and rating of various kinds of consumer products. It comes into existence in response to criticisms of the culture of consumer capitalism that already exist prior to the Great Depression. Um, but like many employers in the culture industries, it's also not a very good place to work. Uh, pay is low. There's a lot of there's a lot of labor turnover even in the 1930s um, because conditions are so poor. Um, Ultimately, um, you have some of the people who work there join the Communist Party. It seems that communist activists also uh, salt consumers' research to a certain extent. That is to say, deliberately try to get hired there so they can try to organize the workers. And this leads to a strike. Uh, at consumers' research that begins in the fall of 1935. And it's one of the first, there'll be many in subsequent years, but it's one of the first actual strikes that's carried out by white-collar workers who were engaged in the production of culture. And the strike ultimately results not in a contract with consumers' research, but essentially a kind of secession. Um, where most of the strikers leave and with the backing of 
um, progressives and leftists in the labor movement and in the popular front movement more generally established this new organization called Consumers Union at the beginning of 1936, uh, an organization that still exists today, albeit with a very different kind of political orientation than Consumers Union um, had during its first 15 or so years of existence. Um, it tries to be a model for um, organized cultural work. Um, it immediately signs a contract with the Book and Magazine Guild, which will become a division of the United Office and Professional Workers of America, um, tries to be sort of internally a model of sort of more autonomous worker-directed, um, you know, creative work, um, and also to function you know, in alliance with the labor movement, but also to provide an absolutely scathing critique of advertising and consumer capitalism generally. Um, by the end of the 1930s, Consumers Union is being attacked by more conservative publishers that it has called out um, over the years. Um, including the Hearst Corporation, one of the largest media enterprises in the mid-20th century United States. Um, and the Hearst Corporation is able to use its influence with the newly created, um, or really sort of the, the predecessor of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, uh, headed by Texas Congressman and notorious anti-communist Martin Dyes, um, that begins to explicitly attack Consumers Union. Um, so that in 1939 and again in 1944, Consumers Union is officially cited uh, by this House investigative committee as being a communist-influenced, subversive um, organization because of its, um, again, scathing, penetrating critiques uh, of advertising, which is cast as being fundamentally fraudulent um, and misleading. Um, by its attacks on the idea of having consumer brands. Um, consumer Union during this period advocates the production of graded generic products. Well, this is a set of images that I was very grateful for in the book because it shows that, that the creative industries do indeed have a lot of power to influence the society around them in multiple ways. But also got a sense that some of the critiques of capitalism somehow ultimately also led to the ultimate decline of the creative industries in New York, um, despite the fact that in the 1950s and the 1960s sort of saw a rebirth of the American economy. Well, the first you have to, I think, take into account the impact of the Cold War, uh, which is, you know, driven by opposition to communism, uh, but is also a way of trying to dramatically weaken, if not eliminate altogether, this adversarial subculture that's developed within New York's culture industries during the 1930s and 1940s. Um, Anti-communist attacks, uh, taking advantage of provisions of a new labor law, the Taft-Hartley Act that's passed in 1947, a legislation that sort of limits the organizing and limits the rights of labor unions, um, 
that this is a very effective tool. One of the provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act is that all unions officers must be able to sign anti-communist affidavits in order for their unions to continue to access the services of the National Labor Relations Board. This creates quite a quandary for these left-led unions in New York's culture industries. Um, the United Office and Professional Workers of America ultimately tries to resist the anti-communist provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act and finds that in the process it's destroyed essentially. Um, the Radio Guild, the Book and Magazine Guild, the Advertising Guild, the Screen Publicist Guild are largely destroyed. So the unions themselves are in a weaker position in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s to advocate for the interests of white-collar workers um, of various types in New York's culture industries during the post-war period. Um, on the one hand, the post-war years are a period of tremendous prosperity. Uh, advertising expenditures increase dramatically. Right, That patronage is just flowing out into the rest of the culture industries, um, right? improving profits for newspapers, for magazines. Um, this is a period after the Second World War when we see the rapid growth of broadcast television in the United States, um, which quickly comes to absorb you know, much of this growing flow of corporate largesse that's kind of being funneled through the advertising agencies. And that certainly is beneficial to many groups of culture workers in the post-World War II period. Uh, but this is also a period in New York when we see various kinds of economic dislocations. Um, and again, the unions are in a weaker position to help workers navigate this. Um, we see this very clearly, for instance, with the daily newspaper industry in New York City, um, which enters into a protracted period of structural crisis by the 1960s. Uh, between 1963 and 1967, four of the seven daily newspapers in New York City go out of business, right? which results in thousands of layoffs. Uh, the television industry which has its birth really in New York City, which is the point of origination for most primetime network broadcasting in the earliest years of television in the late 1940s and the early 1950s, that industry relocates to largely to Southern California. So even though the post-war period is prosperous generally, and even though, you know, large and growing sums of advertising expenditure are flowing into the culture industries. In many fields within New York City, we begin to see uh, declining employment or insecure employment um, in the midst of this prosperity during the 1960s, certainly. Well, as we're coming towards the end of the time period which you cover in the book, I wonder if we could backtrack a little bit and think about something that is evident from the very beginning of the stories, which is the fact that the labor and unionizing struggles 
in the white collar industries are to a great extent gendered struggles. I wonder if you could speak about the role that gender played in the creative industries, unionizing efforts. Absolutely. Um, women are essential to organizing many of the white collar unions that I examine in the making of the American creative class. Um, women predominate in clerical occupations by the 1930s, but because of pervasive sex discrimination, find their opportunities to be promoted or hired into um, more creative jobs, jobs as writers, as editors, as photographers, as artists of other kinds, of other kinds of creative work, uh, that these opportunities are largely closed off. Um, and that even within the clerical jobs, within publishing firms, broadcasters, other kinds of media firms, other kinds of culture industry firms, um, that sex discrimination and sexism are used to keep those wages low. Um, so there's kind of a, a, a perception of an overlap between gender discrimination and their everyday lived experience of class within the workplace. Um, so you have these women who are being radicalized, many of whom are involved with other kinds of activities of the popular front, who are also taking a leading role in organizing not all, but many of the unions within New York City's culture industries during the 1930s and 1940s. Um, this sort of first wave of popular front labor feminism reaches its peak uh, during the middle of the 1940s, when you begin to have at some workplaces significant numbers of women who are organizers, who are active in collective bargaining, and who begin um, – with limited success, but who begin to try to use the union as ways to actually institute enforceable programs to guarantee equal employment opportunity for women in the workplace. The success in addressing gender discrimination during this period is somewhat limited, but the desire to do so is a very strong motivating factor, right, that pulls women into these unions, right, who see them as a way of advancing the cause of gender equity and equal employment opportunity. When we see a resurgence in feminist activism amongst workers within the culture industries in the late 1960s and early 1970s, in many instances, these women end up having to sort of reinvent um, labor feminism. The, mem the historical memory of left-wing women's activism um, through the white-collar unions, through the Popular Front, uh, in the culture industries during the 1930s and 1940s is sort of largely lost to them. Um, but again, this is one of the legacies of the Cold War and anti-communism in the United States. Um, you begin to see feminists in publishing especially, but also in broadcasting and other fields during the 1970s um, 
begin to actually revitalize some of the unions in New York's culture industries. Uh, But they're doing so at a moment when the long period of post-World War II prosperity in the United States is coming to an end. Well, my last question I thought would be unfair to ask of a historian, but you did just mention the historical memory that needs to be reproduced time and time again in labor struggles. So I want to ask you about your prognosis and your reflection about the kind of crisis moments that the creative industries are experiencing right now, not least due to the pandemic. I think when we try to analyze the current situation and how the lessons of the 20th century uh, culture industry workers might apply, I think we need to distinguish between sort of the proximate crises of cultural production in the world you know, in 2021, and certain longer-term structural changes as well. One of these, you know, is increased economic inequality uh, and the diminished purchasing power of a significant portion of the consuming public. And here we can definitely draw parallels between the early 21st century and the situation that precipitated the onset of the Great Depression in the 1930s, which was in many ways a crisis of consumer capitalism, a crisis uh, caused and sustained by the inadequacy of mass consumer demand in a situation where you had a highly unequal distribution of national income. Certainly, we're in a, current, a similar situation today. Um, but some of the structural factors that, that we confront presently are unique. Um, one of these is the collapse of the advertising-supported model for many kinds of media enterprises. Um, This is most obvious when we look at publishing um, of newspapers and magazines, but it applies to television and radio and digital new media as well. Uh, Revenue that used to go to the firms that actually hired writers and artists and other content creators, right? that revenue is now flowing to a handful of tech companies, um, right? So that aspect of the conter- of the contemporary crisis actually, you know, doesn't have a, a really a clear precedent in either um, the challenges that white collar workers in the culture industries faced in the 1930s, or for that matter, um, in the cultural deindustrialization of New York that occurred in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, but I think some of the broader lessons definitely still apply. Uh, the relevance of organizing, uh, the importance of you know, forming unions and engaging in collective bargaining with employers. Uh, again, not just to provide better pay, more stable working conditions for writers and artists and other members of the creative class, which is obviously important, uh, but also to establish more creative autonomy. Again, um, you know, to use collective action as a way to actually create conditions of more individual fulfillment. Well, I certainly say hooray to that. What a fantastic and optimistic moment to end on. Shannon, thank you very much for joining me today. 
Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to discuss the book with you today. The Making of the American Creative Class, New York's Culture Workers and 20th Century Consumer Capitalism is published by Oxford University Press. My thanks go to today's guest, Shannon Clark. I'm Pierre Lancer, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Join us next time.